Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you guys have your Bibles, please take them out and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 17 through 21, which means we will be finishing up the book of 1 Timothy this morning. And before we read the text, let us come before the Lord and pray for the, the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord God, we are, again, grateful for the opportunity that we can come before the throne of grace in our time of need. We are grateful, Lord God, that you have torn the veil between, between you and us, Lord, that through Jesus Christ we have been reconciled and that we don't have to come to a particular place in the world to worship you, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Lord, also for the gift of fellowship and the gathering together of your believers, Lord, that we have a common faith and we can assure one another and lift up one another and remind each other that we all belong together in one family to you, Lord. I pray, Lord God, as we read your word today, as we finish the book of 1 Timothy, a book on your church, that we would do so, Lord, remembering the purpose of the church and also mindful of the admonitions contained in the letter, but that, Lord God, most importantly, we would live with our hearts and minds centered upon you. And I pray, Lord God, you would use your word today to pierce our hearts, to convict us of sin, and to change us and shape us more and more in the image of your glorious Son and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The eminent theologian A.W. Pink once wrote, The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that, and that is why so many, fatally, so many are fatally deceived, for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire, who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality or worldliness. So here we are finally at the end of the first letter to Timothy. It didn't take nearly as long as Mark did. Only about half of a year as we begin, or we will embark on Romans, I am endeavoring to do it faster than John Piper, which was six years, but we'll see how that works itself out. Um, 
But we began this sermon series, and the, the intention of it from the very beginning was that we would grow in our understanding of the church as the body of Christ, specifically talking about the local congregation, the local church. In fact, as, the, as Paul references the church over and over again in the Bible, most of his references are to a local congregation, thinking in terms of the local body. And what we've seen in this letter really informs our understanding that, that, the, that the church really belongs to God. It is His church. It is not my church. It is not yours. We belong to it, but it doesn't belong to us. It is His church and His household, which means it's His family. The local church is the gathering together of God's people for the purposes of His own glory. And because it belongs to him, and because it was created by him, the church is to be, and it is to do all of the things that God himself says it is to be and to do. The church was created for God's purposes, and we are to seek to live out those purposes. And what we've seen in the church is that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The local church is the God-ordained instrument that he's using to declare and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church was created to proclaim and to protect the orthodox doctrines or the teachings of the Christian faith. You see, the church is not, as some would, see, would assume, a social club. And it's not just a community to belong to. Yes, it is a community that we belong to, but that's not the gist of it. The church is the tool, the instrument that God has been using to declare the gospel, to defend the faith, and to disciple the nations. The church, the local church, is the hope of the world because the church is the hub of the Christian life. This is where the family of God gathers together for worship. This is where God's sheep come to be fed. This is where the foundational teachings of the Christian faith are to be studied and to be learned and to be declared and to be preserved for the next generation. This is where the saints are, as it says in Ephesians, are equipped for the work of the ministry. They're part in the ministry and the mission of Christ. The church is also the launching pad from which we send out missionaries and church planters around the world to create more local churches. The church is God's instrument that he's been using to reach the dying world around us. And it's because of that the church must be lived in and operated the way that God has designed for it to. And this is why there is an expectation in the Bible of how the church is to be led. This is why there is expectations of qualifications for leaders of the church, I was talking to someone and they were talking about some of the issues they were facing in their, their local assembly and it, it comes down to there were people who were unqualified in leadership in leadership. Right? There's also an expectation of the members of the church that they would live and behave in a certain way in and as the church and there's a, an expectation that they would joyfully submit to the leadership of those in the church. The church is the organism, the living, breathing organism by which the members of the church are being enabled to grow towards spiritual maturity and individually and corporately called to fulfill the mission to bring salvation to the world. And this is the truth that we have come to understand, and this is the truth that we wholeheartedly embrace. And what we've seen in this first letter to Timothy is Paul's calling this young pastor to faithfully stand in the gap and fight for that local church in Ephesus. 
The church in Ephesus was once a faithful church. It was started by Paul himself. But over time, it allowed unqualified people to take over leadership in the church. And the result of that became people teaching false doctrines, either falsely or just in their ignorance. And that in turn led to behavioral issues inside the church. And upon discovering this, Paul left Timothy in that city to correct and bring that church back to its theological foundations. His job was to bring reformation to a church that had gone wayward. And Paul writes this letter to encourage him and to outline for him the basic things that he needs to do to get the church set straight. And as we talked about over and over again, but it's helpful to remember that the first thing Timothy was to do is to put an end to the false teaching. That's the starting point. And to discipline the false teachers. And then second, he was to shore up the leadership in the church and make sure that those who are in leadership are qualified. The Bible makes it clear that people who have leadership in the church are to be qualified on a number of different levels. And because of that, Timothy was expected to make sure that that standard was upheld. And then the third thing, he was to deal with the myriad of behavioral issues that sprung up as a result of false teaching. And he had to do that through the preaching of the word and gentle and loving church discipline. We sang this morning about asking God to discipline us. We struggle to reconcile the words loving and discipline in the same sentence, but really that's what Timothy was called to do. And one of the behavioral issues that Paul dealt with was one that many of us are familiar with. It's the issue of money, the issue of gain, and the issue of greed. In fact, in verse 5 of, of this same chapter, verse, in chapter 6, uh, Paul states that false teachers see their ministry and living for God as really a means for profit, as a means to gain. In other words, they see their relationship with God as a means to grow in wealth. That they see that's why God has raised them up, is to bless them financially. Because their hearts are not set on the giver of the gifts, but rather the gifts themselves. And Paul warned Timothy that those who desire to be rich fall into all kinds of temptation. And many people have wandered away from the faith, right, in pursuit of wealth and have injured themselves greatly in the process. And then Paul gives us the very famous quote, the very famous verse that we're, we're familiar with, that the love of, of money is a root of all kinds of evils, which I believe is something that we are familiar with. And I believe that we're seeing playing out in our common world today. We see things happen politically that doesn't make any sense and people scratch their heads that it seems that certain people get away with things all the time. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. I mean, think about this. In the last year and a half, there are nine new billionaires. Any guesses in what industry they belong to? It's the pharmaceutical industry. Any, miracle, any, any epiphanies there, right? Hundreds of billions, if, in fact, I think it's even a trillion dollars now, worldwide has been spent to combat a virus with over a 99% survival rate with over almost a trillion dollars. Now, here's the thing. I don't, I don't really care, you know, where people are politically. I love them all the same, right? And I don't care if you are pro-vaccine uh, or if you're somebody who's waiting or resistant to it. Everyone needs to do their own homework. Everybody needs to do, weigh their own issues. Everybody needs to go to, their, go, go to the Word of God and by their consciences make the decision for themselves. If you choose to receive the vaccine, then good for you. you know, if it gives you peace of mind, praise the Lord for that. If you don't choose to do so, then good for you as well. You're making the decision what's best for you. My point is this. 
is I struggle to trust people and organizations who want to tell me what to do, who at the very same time have a vested financial interest in telling me what to do. I think it's naive for us to think that the billions of dollars being spent on this virus isn't influencing the outcome and influencing the narrative that's being told to us, as we have been assured of for decades now, that people who claim to be our friends will lie to us. Because as we know, that money is the root of all kinds of evils. As James White says, if somebody, if you can get somebody to kill your, your mother-in-law for $5,000, how much more will they do for billions of dollars? Which is why Paul is telling Timothy the same thing. He warns them of the deceitfulness of riches. We all know, right, that riches can be deceitful. It's insidious, right, the desire for wealth. We know it, right? Everybody knows that money can't buy happiness, but everybody's wanting to try, right? And then he reminds us that there is great gain instead and great security in the advantage in contentment. That there's great gain in contentment with godliness. That being content with the things that we already have, that what God has provided for us, whether it's a little or whether it's a whole lot, that we can have great gain in contentment by pursuing a life that honors God. Now with that, as we, as, we has, as, as we have talked about, Paul is not saying that wealth is bad in itself. In of itself. There are those who will read Paul's words here or read different parts of the Bible and say, see, if you're rich, you're just going to hell. You're just one of them sinners who's just greedy all the time. Believe me, greed is not limited to rich people. Poor people can be just as greedy. So Paul's not saying that wealth itself is bad, and he's not saying that having a lot of wealth is bad, and he's certainly not saying that saving and investing for the future is bad. In fact, the Bible makes a clear case that we ought to be you know, good stewards and frugal and plan well. What Paul is saying is the issue tends to be we have an issue of the heart. You see, wealth has a gravitational pull for most of us. And that gravitational pull tends to draw people away from God and toward greed. This is why Jesus says that it's easier. This is what he said literally. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And no, he wasn't talking about a gate in a city. And no, he wasn't talking about a rope. He was talking about a literal big animal fitting through a small hole and said that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle then a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven and his disciples immediately recognizing the impossibility said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus makes it clear that with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. But wealth tends to draw people away from God and toward greed. Wealth tends to lead people to believe that, that it is the source of their security that it's a source of their happiness, it's a source of their joy and hope, that it's a source of even their identity. That's why Paul talks about the love of money and the desire to be rich and the craving of wealth. He uses those, those, those verbs, right? Wealth tends to draw our hearts and affections away from God toward it. And again, wealth itself is not the issue. It's the heart's response to it's the issue. And that's why Paul makes a point to say that contentment, being content in, with whatever we have, and keeping our eyes fixed on God and pursuing a life that's pleasing to Him, that's what's truly profitable and fulfilling, right? A fulfilling way to live. Even if you are poor, even if you are a widow, 
dependent upon the church. Even if you have to work three jobs and you work hard every day just to make a living, it is better to live that way and live content and live for God than to sell your soul and pursue wealth. This is the point that Paul has been making. But what about those who were already wealthy? Those Christians who had great resources at their disposal, would Paul call them to just suddenly sell it all and then, you know, take a vow of poverty? In Ephesus, there were a number of Christians who were poor. I mean, but there were also a number of Christians who were very well off. In fact, there were a few who were very, very, very wealthy. What about them? Well, Paul, in this text, will address them. But some of you might be surprised at how he addresses them. And some of you might even think, well, why are we even talking about this? I mean, that's all well and good, right? But what does this have to do with us? I mean, he's talking to the rich. And guess what? You look around. We ain't rich. I would say that this has more to do with us than you, you might think. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll start reading verse 17. And Paul says, as for the rich in this present age. I stop there because in this phrase is an idea that many people overlook with respect to money and wealth and financial gain. And oftentimes, as we read the Bible, sometimes we just kind of read through phrases and words as if we kind of like understand where he's going, sometimes forgetting to stop and go, wait a minute, why did he say it that way? But there's something that he's communicating in the way he says this. And, and the word I'm referring to is not the word rich. I mean, obviously, he's talking about rich people, right? But I want you to notice how he qualifies them. He says that they are rich in this present age. That's the important idea here. This present age. Now, at this time. By the way, the way that you define this present age theologically is the age between Christ's first coming and then when he comes again, right? So, so we are living in what? This present age. And again, notice he says, the rich in this present age. Now, think about this for a second. What is the implications of what he's saying when he says it this way? Because he didn't say it like this on accident. Paul is brilliant, and also he is, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to say what he says, how he says it. What is the underlying point that he's making here? What he's saying is those who are rich are rich now, in this present age. But they may not be rich in the next age. That being rich now and being rich then are two completely different things. That being rich in this present age doesn't necessarily mean that you get to be rich in the next. In fact, it could be quite the opposite. That's the underlying point of the text here. In fact, I want you to look at verse 19. Paul says, thus storing up treasure, right? seeking to be rich, thus storing up Treasure for themselves as a good foundation for what? The future. Paul is saying that the rich in this age ought to do something in order to store up treasure for the future. And the future he's talking about is not retirement. He's not talking about 401ks. By the way, they didn't exist back then, right? He's not talking about 
storing up for you so when you get old that you have a couple of bucks to live on. No, he's talking about the future, the ultimate future. The future that all of mankind, by the way, has been designed for. A future in eternity. You see, most people forget that we're all going to live forever. The only question is, is where? The future he's talking about is the, is the time when we step across the thref, threshold of this life out of this age into the next age and into eternity. And those who are in their sin and who are apart from Christ will find in eternity nothing but spiritual bankruptcy and poverty and torment as a result. But those who are in Christ will find spiritual riches and a lavish life. That's the future that Paul is talking about. What Paul is saying here is what a person does here and now in this present life, this present age, then echoes and reverberates all the way into eternity. What we do here now impacts the future. Similar to the way that your choices today impact tomorrow. Your actions today impact the next week. What you eat tonight at 9.30 at night when you shouldn't will impact how you feel in the morning. Right? Your actions in this life impact and echo in the next. And, and so Paul is saying that to the rich in this life, they need to do something so that they have treasure in the next life because this life, the treasure they have, they won't have anymore. And so Paul says, for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, which, who, provides, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. Then notice the familiar word that we've seen over and over again, the word charge. If you've been here for a while, you've heard this multiple times, that, that Paul has used this word again and again. And when he uses this word, it's a military word. It's a forceful word. It means to command. It doesn't mean to suggest, it means to command. He is to command the rich people to do something. The rich people in Ephesus are to do something. And notice, again, it doesn't say suggest. He doesn't say, well, encourage them to live this way or, or just ask them or beg them to live this way. He says, no, charge them, command them, tell them with authority how they are to live. And notice this, this, this command is both negative and positive. There is a don't do in there and there is a do. Paul tells Timothy to command the rich to not do certain things and positively they are to do other things instead. Negatively, he says, do not be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but positively they are to set their hope on God and they are to do good. This is how they are to, to go from being rich in this present life to being rich in the next, which means the details here are really important to us. So let's take a little bit closer look. Paul, first thing he says to Timothy is to command the rich to not be haughty. I always struggle to pronounce that word. I want to put an N in there and say haunty, you know, but it's not, it's not that, right? I think my daughter watches too many scary movies and so it just kind of influences me that way. But, but that word haughty means arrogant. And I don't know why they just couldn't use that word, but it's okay. But it means arrogant, it means conceited. Now why in the world would Paul tell Timothy to warn the rich to not be arrogant and full of themselves? Because the natural tendency for those who are wealthy is to be what? Conceited and arrogant. I mean, we see it every day. 
especially now with, with social media and, and the, the celebrity culture. We see it even like in the political spectrum. I mean, we just saw it in Congress, a famous young congresswoman who, whose fame baffles me, but she goes to a $30,000 a plate dinner, a 30, she paid $30,000 to eat cold chicken, right? $30,000 a plate dinner, wearing a white dress emblazoned with the red letters that say, tax the rich. I'm going, do you understand the very walking contradiction you are right now? I mean, think about that. A privileged young politician virtue signaling for the world by wearing a designer custom dress that says tax the rich to a dinner that only the rich people can actually afford to go to. What arrogance to pretend that as if she's a champion of the people. Right? And, and even more than that, this congresswoman sh shows up at the dinner with all the other guests who by the way, remind us all the time that we're continuing in a pandemic and tell us we gotta wear our mask and social distance, but they don't have masks on. But by the way, all the people who are working there and serving, you see them in the background huddled away from these celebrities and all of them are forced to wear masks. This is the epitome of haughtiness, wouldn't it, wouldn't you say? It's just one example of what we see all the time. How many people who, who, who are rich, they behave as if they are better, simply better than everyone else, that somehow that they are higher above, that they are entitled to things that no one else is simply because they have wealth. In fact, a lot of wealthy people think that their identity is in their wealth. They think that, that that's what that makes them who they are. This is especially grievous for those who claim to be in Christ because the moment you're in Christ, you are no longer defined. By your old life, you were defined wholly by him. As I recently reminded our youth group, like when you become a Christian, that word Christian defines everything else. You're a Christian child. You were a Christian student. You're a Christian athlete. If you're a grown-up, you're a Christian parent. You're a Christian employer. Christian defines is the central identity of your entire life. And those who are in Christ, if they truly understand the gospel and the grace of God understand, they really have nothing to be arrogant about anyway. They understand that they are just like everyone else. They might have a few more bucks in their pocket, but there's really no difference. They are sinners in desperate need of a savior, just like everyone else. They are born totally depraved, just like everyone else. They are rightfully under the wrath of God, just like everyone else. And their only hope is not money or fame or influence. Their only hope is the finished work of Christ on the cross, just like everyone else. Those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, have no cause. Never, ever do they have a cause to be arrogant or conceited or to look down on anyone, regardless of how vast their wealth may be. And so Paul says, do not be haughty. And he says, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So if there's another temptation besides being haughty, that wealth brings is the temptation that we see in people that they will look at their riches and their wealth as a source of what? Of security. 
The people, rich and poor, both of them will see wealth as a source of stability, wealth as a source of security. I mean, let's just all admit it. I think we've all thought to ourselves, you know, a little more money would might make me feel a little bit more secure right now. Man, if I had another $1,000 a month, gosh, life would be so good. Man, if I could just win the lottery someday, right? Gosh, I would really be set. If I just had, you know, this amount of money in the bank, then I would just, I'd feel secure. Not only does wealth cause people to become arrogant, it draws them to hope in wealth, to find security in it, to find stability in it. Those who have wealth and those who desire to have wealth can fall into the trap of thinking that wealth can bring true security. In fact, I want you to notice two things that wealth can cause in someone. It can cause them to see wealth as their identity and also as their wealth as their hope. Which is what? When, when, when you find your identity and hope in something, what, do you, what is that? That's idolatry. It's your God then, right? When your identity and your hope is found in anything else but God, it is idolatry. If your identity or your hope is in wealth rather than God, you have a false idol. That's why Paul says, charge them, command them to not be arrogant and not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And notice he says that the riches that people trust in, the riches that people build their identity on, the people that people build their whole existence around, those riches are uncertain. As history has d- demonstrated, by the way, for thousands of years, but there is still something inside of people that that's not going to happen to me. This is important because, again, people think that wealth will make them secure, that wealth will make them stable. But what we do know is that wealth, even massive amounts of it, can still be uncertain. Being rich brings with it uncertainty. Why? Because all of material wealth is fleeting. What did Jesus say about the nature of material wealth? What were his words? He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. The nature of material wealth is that it is unstable and it's easily lost. It's easy to lose. I think we all know that, at least a little bit. I mean, stock markets crash. Real estate markets fall apart. Pandemics cause the entire government to shut down entire economies. In fact, you realize right now, there are millions of small businesses that don't exist anymore. People who were making a good living for themselves and their families. People who were by considered by a lot of standards to be rich. or not rich anymore. Identity thieves can empty your bank account like that. Natural disasters can ruin all of your possessions. Massive amounts of wealth can disappear in the flash of a computer glitch. Paul says don't find your identity or your wealth Don't find your identity in wealth and don't set your hope on wealth because it's uncertain. Not to mention, you can't even take it with you anyway. As Paul said it earlier in in verse 7, we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. 
So by the way, whatever wealth that you amass here on earth, at some point you are giving it up in the future whether you like it or not. A rich man actually once died and someone asked, how much did he leave behind? And the preacher said, he left it all. That's how much he left. He left every bit of it. Why? Because you can't take it with you. Paul tells Timothy to command the rich not to be arrogant and set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather set their hopes on God. And the reason why is because what you have in God is not uncertain. He is not unstable. He is not movable. What we have in Him is unshakable and unbreakable and unbreakable. Our hope is in Him because He's the only thing that's certain in all of the universe. Not to mention, He is the source of all other things anyway. Paul says it right here to Timothy to tell the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And notice what he says. God provides us with, what does that word say? Everything. With what? Everything. I think we, in our little bubble, in our short little lives, in our workaholic efforts at times, think that, you know, it's by our own hand. But I want you to understand that God provides everything. Everything that you have is from the hand of God. The money in your bank account is from God. The clothes on your back is from God. The food that's in your pantry right now nearing the expiration date, is still from God. Unless you think that somehow you are your own provider by your own efforts and your work, remember the breath that's in your lungs right now is from who? From God. The ability to get up in the morning and do what you need to do is a gift from God. The talent that you have that it takes to do your job is itself another gift from the hand of God. You simply being here in this country where you have the freedom to do the things that you want to do and do the job that you are doing that's paying for the living that you have right now is still itself a gift from God. God is the one who provides you with everything. He is the source of it all. And notice Paul says that God richly provides. God doesn't simply just provide. He richly provides. He lavishly provides. He provides in abundance. In fact, he provides way more than we ever need. Notice he says that God provides us with us for everything to enjoy. He doesn't just give us the things that we need in the moment to survive. He gives us everything to enjoy. You see, the life that, we, that he's given us here is not simply just about survival. It's also about enjoying things. I mean, think about it. If God simply wanted us to scrape by, and eke out an existence by the sweat of our brow, working 18 hours a day and barely getting any sleep at nighttime, you know, running from wild animals, it could certainly be that way. But even that would be a life of grace because we don't even deserve that. Even that life is by the grace of God. It's more than we would deserve anyway. But that's not the life that He gives us. He gives us plenty to enjoy. We all experience joy. God gives us enough to even be happy in moments. All of us experience our share of happiness in moments. We have those moments that make us smile, those moments that bring us great joy. God is a generous and gracious God. And He's generous and gracious even to the whole world, even including unbelievers. As Jesus said 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God, by his generous, gracious nature, lavishes his gifts on all of humanity, but even more for those who belong to him. Because he not only gives us all things to enjoy, we also then have Christ, who is our ultimate joy. I mean, this is the part that I stumble over because I, I know it, but I forget it, right? He sent Christ into the world to make peace between us and Him, right? He did it. We didn't do anything. Jesus came into the world, God in the flesh, and did for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. Lived a life of absolute, total moral perfection. The moral perfection that's required by God to have fellowship with Him. He upheld the law that we, we can't uphold. People say, you know, the gospel is to love God and, and love other people. No, that's not the gospel. That's the law. You can't do it. That's why Christ came. He upheld the law we couldn't hold, and He fulfilled the covenant that must be fulfilled. He did it for us. As a man, he earned for us a perfect righteous standing before God without which no one could ever stand before God in his presence. And if that weren't enough, then he willingly went to the cross and suffered at the hands of his enemies. But more importantly, he bore in his body the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus on the cross took our place and suffered and took and paid the penalty for our sin. And that's not amazing enough. He offers us forgiveness of our sin and perfect righteousness before God and eternal life and riches in heaven. All we must do is what? Repent and believe the gospel. We avail ourselves not because we do something for God, not because we straighten ourselves up, not because we start living a right life, not because we stop drinking, stop cussing, stop doing all these other things. We avail ourselves only simply by putting faith in Jesus Christ. God is a generous God. A gracious God, and He is worthy of all our hope. That's why Paul says to put your hope in God and not in riches. So Paul then says, command the rich to not be arrogant, to not put their hope in the uncertainty of wealth, but hope in God. And in light of that hope, the rich are to what? To do good. In fact, he says that the rich are to, to, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Not only are they to, to find their identity in God, but they are to trust in Him. They are to also use their wealth as a means of doing good to others. He says they are to be generous and share what they have and be rich in good works. And remember, Paul tells Timothy, this is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't like, hey, this is optional. This is a command, which brings up an interesting point for me. Because last night I was having a conversation. Um, we had, Kim and I had dinner with some of her friends from the uh, pregnancy center. And uh, I got into a conversation with an articulate man who was very passionate about the direction of our, our country. And, and he was very passionate about the pro-life movement. And so he and I had a lot of common ground. We had a lot that we, we could talk about and, um, and a lot to be passionate about. 
But he was a very conservative, devout, dyed-in-the-wool Irish Catholic. I mean, I mean, he knew his stuff. And he knew where he stood and why he stood where he did. And, and it became apparent that he was convinced that, that, you know, it became apparent that he was convinced that Christians ought to live a life that's committed to obeying God's commandments, particularly with, with respect to how we care for the poor. He was very passionate about that. And he, and he asked, right, what text I was preaching on. And I told him, I said, I'm actually preaching on uh, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17 through 21. And I told him that we're going to preach about the admonition from Paul to the rich to basically do good right, with their wealth. And he took the opportunity then to ask me, he says, do you believe that if a person says he's a Christian, that he ought to live like one? Or in other words, do you think that Christians are obligated to do good works? And I paused for a second because I knew exactly where he's coming from. And I said, yes, but not for the reasons why you think. And he kind of, then I had his attention. I says, because the Bible does make it clear. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that, that, that Christians are to do good works. If somebody says that, that, that Christians aren't, then they just haven't read the Bible. I mean, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, right? Everybody loves verses 8 and 9. They forget verse 10, right? Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For, right? For, because we are His workmanship in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, by the way, which God has already prepared beforehand that you should what? Walk in them, that you should do them. So there is an expectation that we as Christians, when we trust in God, that we are to do good works, which is what Paul tells Timothy here. He calls the rich to good works. They are to trust in God, and then they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So there is an expectation that they would first put their faith in Christ, and they would do, as a result, the works behind that. That they would live out the love of Christ. That they would love their neighbor as the Bible commands. And so I said, yes, there is an expectation that Christians would do good works and live their lives, right, in a way that's marked by the obedience to God's commandments. But I said, the difference between us is this. For the Christian, good works are the fruit of your salvation, not the root of your salvation. For Christians, it is the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. We're not saved by the good works we do but we do good works because we are saved. The truth about the gospel is this, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and your heart is plowed by, by the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings so that the seed of God's word may fall into that tilled up soil, your very nature is supernaturally changed. And when the word of God takes hold in your life and grows up, it invariably will bear fruit in your life. Why? Because you have been born again. You were no longer dead in your sins and trespasses, but made alive in Christ. You were a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 
When you truly hope in Christ, you will begin to love the things that God loves and you will begin to hate the things that God hates. Not because you are choosing to do so, but because you are by, by your nature transformed supernaturally by God Himself. And you will begin to see the world differently. You will begin to see the world and its people through the lenses of God's Word and you will begin to love other people supernaturally in ways you didn't before. And you'll begin to hate the materialism and the worldliness that surrounds our culture. If you're a brand new Christian, just give it time. Things that don't offend you right now will offend you later on. You will just become, you won't stay immune to these things forever. And you will begin again to love other people. And this is in response to what God has already done for you. If we don't do good works to make God love us, we do good works because He already loved us and rescued us by his, by his grace. And so what Paul is saying to the rich in this life, that they're to trust not in the material things, but trust in him and trust in God in a way that is evident in how they use their wealth. Those who are in Christ will do good with what God has entrusted with them because God is the source of it anyway. And they will be an instrument of great good by being generous and sharing what they have, and in the process, storing up for themselves treasures as a good foundation for the future. They're storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. As, again, as Jesus himself said, do not lay up, your, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus and Paul both remind us not to focus our attention on acquiring and maintaining wealth here and now. Now understand, that does not say, do not be wise with your money and invest for the future. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, don't make that the focus of your life. But use what you have to store up treasures in heaven, which is the service that we render to other people, which is the love that we share with other people, which is the gospel that we proclaim to other people, which is the other people who, who come to faith in Christ. Those are the treasures that we're storing up. We're to live not for what we, what we have now. We're not to live for what can be taken from us and destroyed. We're to live for what is eternal. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is material things and your heart is not set on God, it's as simple as that. And by the way, I didn't write the mail, I just deliver it, okay? As my brother Bodhi says all the time. If you treasure material things, then your heart's not set on God, but on the material world. But if your heart is set on the heavenly treasures, you will give evidence by that fact that your heart is set on God by the way that you use what you have. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, the eye of the lamp the eye is the lamp of the body. So if, the, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. And then he says, no one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one or love the other, or, you, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can have but one God. The emphasis... 
This is the emphasis of what Paul is saying here. The rich are not to trust, are not to trust in their material things. They're to trust in God. Right? And the outworking of their faith is the good works that they, they produce through sharing and generosity that produces lasting treasure in heaven, heavenly treasure. And then he says, so that they may take hold of what, with that which is truly life. This is similar to what Paul had told Timothy with respect to grabbing hold of eternal life. What Paul is saying to the rich is that they need to take hold of real life. And real life is the life that doesn't fade away. As we know, right? That whatever security you have in this life, whatever life that you have now, will not last. As we have family members that lose two family members in one day. As we lost a member of our community, a young lady with four children, much younger than me. And I'm young. But the point I'm trying to make here is that, that the life that we live here today doesn't last. Paul's saying that we need the rich need to take hold of real life. And Paul's saying those who are rich here and now need to live a life that will make them rich in the life to come. They're to live with eternity in view. By the way, not just the rich need to live this way, right? We all need to live with eternity in view. But the admonition is there to use their abundance that God has already blessed them with to enrich the lives of other people and give evidence of their hope in God producing a treasure in heaven, which again goes with Paul's admonition to Timothy to be all in for the cause of Christ. The rich in this life are to use their resources to further the kingdom of God in very big, big ways. And then after that, Paul says to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This brings us back to Timothy's mission, right? This, this brings us back really to, to the foundation of everything else, right? It brings us back to the purpose of the church. It brings us back to even the Christian life. The Christian life is all about the gospel. One of the greatest truths I've ever discovered in my Christian life is that my Christian life is always about the gospel, that the gospel is not the beginning stage of my Christian life. And I go, there's the gospel, Christianity 1.0. Uh, uh, now I move on to the rest of, of, of Christian life, 1.2, and never think about the gospel again. No, it is always, always, always about the gospel. The Christian life is about the gospel. It's about hearing the gospel. It's about believing the gospel. It's about preaching ourselves the gospel and reminding ourselves of the gospel. And it's about defending the gospel. We are to guard and protect the deposit, the truth of God's word that he's entrusted to us all. That is what Paul is telling Timothy, that he is to guard and stand firm and by the way, by extension, we all ought to be doing the same. And we do that by, number one, standing up and defending the orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith. That's how we defend or guard the deposits. This is why we say things that theology matters, because it does. That doctrine matters, because it does. That without the orthodox foundation, without the, without the orthodox doctrines of the church, we would lose our handle on the gospel. 
That's number one. Number two, we are to guard the gospel in how we live. That we don't destroy the gospel that we claim to believe in by living lives that are inconsistent with the gospel. We're to guard the deposit by being faithful to the word of God and by pursuing godliness in our lives. That we're to live the upright, godly lives that we're called to. The godliness that Paul has talked about throughout this entire letter of 1 Timothy, by the way. That's how we guard the gospel. Church, this is how we together guard the gospel. Now, not that we're going to be perfect because we won't be, right? But the Christian life is also marked by Jesus' first admonition to those who would believe, right? He said what? Repent and believe the gospel. It's not a one-time event. It's a continual event. We continue to repent and believe. When we fall down, what do we do? We repent and believe, right? And when we get back up and we continue on and slip again, what do we do? We repent and believe, trusting that God will, will bring us safely home. Now, as we wrap this up, let's just quickly talk about application one last time. How does this admonition to the rich apply to us? I mean, because many of us would say we're not rich. And by a lot of standards, some of us would say we're not, right? But the reality is, it's simply not true, right? We live in America. Most of us own multiple vehicles. We have not just the clothes on our backs. We have lots of clothes in the closet. Some of you have clothes in the closet you've been hoarding and holding on to, hoping that you might fit back into, that you used to fit into at one point, right? I mean, we, we're, all, we're all there, right? I get it. And most of us have food in the refrigerator and in the pantry, even stuff that will probably go bad that we won't ever get to. But that can of like kidney beans that are tucked away in the back, been there for like six years, right? And then we also... Not only have that, but we have excess money to pay for things like cell phones and cable television and trips to other cities and states. In fact, right after this, right after this very service here, you know, my wife and I and uh, and Michaela, we're gonna we're gonna make a 180 mile round trip to go see my daughter and her family because you know they're gonna do her ultrasound and you know praise the Lord we get to do that right. But that is that's an extra right. I mean, we don't need that to live, but we can we can afford the extra fuel. To get there, the truth is that all of us in this room have more resources than 98% of the rest of the world. Vastly more, right? By comparison, right, we are wealthy beyond the imagination of many people we know. Just think about Wilson and the orphans in Kenya. $200 feeds those kids for an entire month. We'll spend $200 at the cafe in a couple weeks. And what about Asif in Pakistan? They don't have near even what we, even the poorest among us have. So indeed, in, in one respect, we are truly rich. Now understand, we're not uber rich and don't have unlimited resources like some people, right? We don't have infinite stores of money laying around. But we do have more than others, and we need to be careful not to set our hope on the riches that we do have. We should, we need, we, now hear me. We need to be good stewards. We need to save for bumpy times. We need to pay our bills, right? You need to have a couple extra bucks just in case of emergencies, right? We need to fund retirements. I mean, that's, that's, those are all relevant things. But we also need to remember we do have enough excess to be able to help and bless and be rich in good works. And we would 
likewise be wise, to be generous and ready to share. Not an effort to make God love us, but because He already does love us. And I say that, I want you to know, I'm saying these things because this is where the text led, right? Not because I think that you're not generous. In fact, I think this congregation is one of the most generous that I've ever seen. I, again, having the same conversation with this man, you know, he asked the size of the town and the size of the church, and, and, and he's like, so, so how tough is it for you guys to, to pay your bills? I said, we pay our bills every month, right? Praise the Lord. Like, we have never missed anything here at First Baptist Church. He goes, well, what, what about the organization above you? I said, what organization above you? So he didn't understand how, he's a Catholic, right? He didn't understand how Baptist, I said, we're an autonomous church. He says, so you don't have a church that's higher up than you? I said, no. So what happens if you get in financial trouble? I said, we just buckle down and pay our bills, right? God has been faithful to us since 19... Uh, 1938. And he's like, you've been around since that, that long? I said, this church has, yes, because of the faithfulness of this congregation. But in that, I would encourage all of us to really look and evaluate. Because I know for me at times, I'll be honest, there have been times in my life thinking, whew, it'd be nice if we had this set aside for, for this. It would be nice, you know, I mean, I, I hear your, your, you know, your calls to, man, it would really be nice. If I, if I won the lotto, you know, we'd have a brand new church. I mean, believe me, that would be nice for the church too, right? But the reality is, is our hope is not founded in any material thing. Our hope is founded on the security of Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. And this is the message that we proclaim. This is the hope of the world. As the rest of the world runs after wealth and privilege and, and vanity and, and fame, Right? As they run about breaking themselves and destroying themselves and mutilating their bodies, we must go out into the world and continually remind them that there is but one hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. And that, by the way, brothers and sisters, is the entire purpose of the church. And that is why God designed the church to be the way that it is. That if we will be the church that God is calling us to be, we'll be a beacon of hope and a light to a dying world. And prayerfully and hopefully, then we'll raise up leaders in this church who will go further out in the world, starting other churches. And that, let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.